it is another blessed opportunity that we have this evening to assemble, that you and I are enjoying the degree of health that we are, and that all things are well and sufficiently so to permit us in the tranquility of the moment to assemble even as we are tonight. The songs that we have sung, the prayer in which we have engaged, all the opportunities so far invested have already made the service a blessing to each of us and hopefully that it has glorified the name of God. And now for the next few moments we also will open the Word of God and perhaps study a portion to challenge each of us even more carefully and wonderfully as we strive to live more holily each day. Certainly thankful for the visitors, my parents, my dad and mom here, and certainly happy and thankful for that. In addition, as we give thought to the Bible Bowl as it's shortly coming, I also like to say a word of appreciation to Brother Gary for the lesson he delivered last Sunday evening. Brother Gary, Brother Jonathan, as they preached last Lord's Day in my absence, so very thankful and continuously so for the opportunity that we have to hear these wonderful lessons that they bring to us from time to time. As I mentioned just a moment ago in terms of the Bible Bowl as it begins here shortly, our youngsters have already begun to think and consider some of the features about the study of the book of 1 Samuel. Some thoughts that perhaps would help each of us appreciate this very matter might be these. First of all, it's been an annual event for us here at Pippin over the last few years, preparation for and study for that Bible Bowl. And this year, the book is 1 Samuel, at least portions of it. Our youngsters will be studying the first 24 chapters of that book. In fact, questions have already begun to be made. Presentations have already begun to be addressed. And so, as it has been done in the past, I will use the Sunday evening services for the next few months to, in fact, consider those same chapters that our youngsters will be studying. I hope that as we study along with them, that some of the features and some of the majesty of that book of 1 Samuel, we too will appreciate with them. In fact, I'm sure they'll be happy to share some of their questions with us adults if we want to also study with them. The book of 1 Samuel, as you can see on that slide, many things might be said about it. It is, in fact, a book that challenges us to notice that God's fingerprints are all over it. We will find as we study those 24 chapters that it too will be a challenge for us to see how God acted in that day and time, how He raised up David the way that He did, how He orchestrated the affairs of the kingdom of Israel, and how that, that still stands as a testimony to how God works in nations and how that we would hope He would work in our nation. I hope that as we, in fact, attach ourselves to some of those points and thoughts, Maybe the first set of them will be the very set of introductory ones that we'll see on this next slide. It wouldn't hurt us, I suppose, to give some thought to at least an overview as we make note of the book of 1 Samuel. The book has a total of some 31 chapters. However, our youngsters are only called upon to master the first 24 of them. It'll be that set of 24 that we also will consider in our studies on Sunday evening. It might certainly be noted there are some 810 verses in the book of which our youngsters will only be studying 649 of them. Amazingly enough, in terms of the whole book, there's over 25,000 words in 1 Samuel. If it is true that every word has been inspired by the God of heaven, doesn't that help us see we have a lot of material that we can consider and a lot of material on which we can focus for this given book. The remarkable features and the character of it I've tried to highlight in some of the following ways. 
we do again see the working of God in this book. The name of God appears very often. We find in this book, in fact, some of the great features that we'll highlight somewhat more greatly as we arrive at chapter 8. As the book of 1 Samuel opens, Israel did not have a king. The time had not yet come when the first king had been appointed. Rather, they were being ruled, governed, shall we say, by the God of heaven with the characteristic on earth of judges. We recall in the book of Judges that there were those individuals such as Othniel, Ehud, and a whole host of others. But as we come to this book, only two judges remain. One of them we will find will be named Eli. The very last one, the 15th and final judge, his name was Samuel. We shall study much about Samuel. In fact, the book is named after him, and it would appear that he wrote it. I would invite you to notice perhaps some other thoughts. I would think it wise to also point out that 1 Samuel, inasmuch as it is an inspired Old Testament book, it's, in, it's valuable for us to appreciate it because some of the messages of the New Testament will find their deepest meaning as we appreciate the Old Testament text. I've listed just a few examples for your consideration. Samuel himself is mentioned more than once in the New Testament. He is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the great members of God's honor roll of faith. And that alone makes him a worthy character of study. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11 verse 32. Furthermore, we notice in Acts 3.24 that when Peter preached that marvelous message that day, he mentioned none other than Samuel. Isn't it interesting also in Acts 7 verse 8 that when Stephen preached, he made mention of Samuel. That alone should make our consideration of Samuel a noteworthy exercise. Consider yet another usage. Israel, in fact, and her kings were mentioned in Acts chapter 13 verse 21 as Paul stood and boldly preached on that first missionary journey. All of those features help us see that when those writers, be they Paul or Peter or the Hebrew writer, made their quotation of and reference to Samuel, that in order for us to appreciate their message as deeply as we should, we will have to know somewhat about the book of 1 Samuel. Our youngsters have a wonderful study in store, and I hope that we as adults will also come to appreciate the glory and majesty of this book. We also notice that David is mentioned in the New Testament and the quotations that are found are drawn from the book of 1 Samuel. In Acts 13, verse number 22, again, as Paul preached on that first missionary journey, he made reference to a man who was after God's own heart. We understand that that's a reference to David and that, in fact, is found in the book of 1 Samuel, the 14th chapter. You'll notice perhaps one final observation both in Hebrews 11 and in Matthew 12, as references are found relating to David, I think it heightens our appreciation of this, that for you and me to understand Romans, 11, Romans 15 verse 4, that whatsoever things were written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, that we will need to have some understanding of 1 Samuel to understand the New Testament as deeply as we no doubt would wish. It is with that said and without further ado that we come to 1 Samuel chapter number 1. This very evening we will attempt to consider the first two chapters of 1 Samuel and clearly doing so in somewhat of a summary fashion. 
but it would be my trust and hope that the overall message and the overall tenor of that might be easily gained in the following way. We immediately encounter in the opening verse of the opening chapter about a man named Elkanah. Elkanah, we readily learn, was a rather notable figure in this area of Ephraim, but we quickly appreciate the fact that he had two wives. This was a day and a time in which God permitted that to take place. But might we quickly understand that the times of that ignorance God winked at. But now He commands every man everywhere to repent. Acts 17 verse 30. Some of those great worthies of the Old Testament did in fact have more than one wife. We understand that that particular allowance on the part of God is no more. This man Elkanah had two wives. One of them was named Peninnah. We learn that she had already borne many children to Elkanah. Several sons and daughters are in fact listed in an indirect fashion. But he had another wife and her name was Hannah. Hannah, we'd readily learned to that point, was barren. She had been unable to bear any children. As you can well appreciate, that alone led to a degree of controversy between the two women because in that day and time, it was an expected thing that a woman would bear children to not only the name of the man, but to the name of the tribe. We readily learned that Elkanah was of the tribe of Ephraim. You'll appreciate some of those additional notes. Each year Elkanah went as was the proper thing for him to worship, and as he went to the place of Shiloh where the tabernacle was positioned, he went to worship. It was on this occasion, however, that something very moving and very compelling and also very negative happened to Hannah. Her adversary bothered her. The text says provoked her. It's almost as if Peninnah would make fun of Hannah because Peninnah had borne children, but Hannah had been un unable to do so. And as all of that took place, we noticed that provocation made things very difficult for Hannah. In fact, so difficult was it that some of these statements are made. First, she was in bitterness of soul. In addition, she wept sorely. She had been brought to tears by what Peninnah had said to her and by the difficulties that Peninnah had brought to her direction. This woman Hannah being moved in such a way by this her rival and by this her adversary brings us to the very bottom line on that slide. Hannah went to the place of prayer and she proceeded to pray. As we give thought to the nature of that prayer, I would ask you to note one more thing. A map that highlights a bit about the location of the tribe of Ephraim. You'll appreciate if you'll notice somewhat on the left-hand side of that map. You'll notice the, words, the word Judah in somewhat larger letters. Just above that is a tiny area that's there, the tribe of Benjamin. And just above that is Ephraim. Inside this territory of Ephraim was the city of Shiloh, and that's where the tabernacle was positioned. That's where they had gone to worship. And also in that place of Ephraim was this territory where Elkanah was from. So that gives us an idea perhaps about the location of where Hannah was, was living and also about how far they had had to travel to arrive at Shiloh. As we give thought to Hannah's plight, that brings us to one, another slide. 
On it, we notice that in this prayer that Hannah had so earnestly prayed, she prayed for a man-child. She prayed that her womb might be blessed with the birth of a son. She wanted her adversary to no longer be able to make fun of her the way that she had. And she wanted this terrible plight that was resting upon her shoulders to be lifted. As you can see among some of those comments, Eli, that high priest of the time, that one who was well aware of the circumstances as he was watching Hannah in prayer, he saw something unusual. He saw her lips moving, but he heard no sound. She was praying, the text says, from her heart. And although her lips were moving, sound was not uttering therefrom. Eli mistook the fact for her to be drunken with wine, and so much so that he rebuked her. He said, "'Be no longer drunken with wine.'" She, in a very kind and compassionate way, corrected him and said, Thy servant is not drunken. But rather she explained her plight. She was praying with earnestness and with fervency. As chapter number 1 rolls forward, we notice that she in fact was blessed with a son. God looked upon her and Elkanah and blessed that union with a son. And that child was named Samuel. You'll notice that the word Samuel means something very interesting. That word literally means his name is El, E-L. You'll notice that's the two letters of the word Samuel. That's so significant because we appreciate in Hebrew that that is a reference to God. And today we still are aware that some songs that VBS people sing and others sometimes sing make mention of El Shaddai, that word El is a reference to the greatness of that name of God, Jehovah. His name is El. It's easy to appreciate that Hannah was desirous of a son and had now been blessed with one. And the name chosen was such a fitting name. Beyond that, we quickly appreciate this. That particular vow that Hannah made went a bit deeper than what we have already noted. Not only did she pray for a son, but she made a promise. She made an oath. If God, you will bless me with a son, I will give him to your service forever. So much so then that she indicated that she would allow this son of hers, when he reached proper age, to be the servant of Eli at the tabernacle, and that on a perpetual basis. We find that Hannah was true to her promise. Just as surely as God had blessed her with a son, she now, in fact, did exactly what she had promised. And so after she had weaned him, and when the proper time came, she took him to the tabernacle complex where Eli, in fact, did his work and she allowed Samuel to remain there in the service of Eli and in the service of God yearly. He, in fact, was to dwell at that place from that point forward. Isn't that amazing to consider the love of a mother and how that she could reach the point of being true to her vow that she would take her son to the tabernacle and leave him there with Eli so that he could serve Eli and serve in the tabernacle. That marvelous statement appreciates for us the following. As chapter 2 opens, we see rather readily that Hannah sang and prayed a song of thanksgiving, thanking God for His blessing of Samuel thanking God for looking upon her and allowing her to enjoy the birth of a son. The first ten verses of chapter 2, in fact, highlight that prayer of thanksgiving that she uttered. 
As you begin in verse number 12, however, of chapter 2, you find that some additional information is provided. Information that is much darker because this information is not directly about Samuel. It's about Eli's sons. Eli, that high priest, was a very aged man. His sons, their names were these, Hophni and Phinehas. As you appreciate these two sons, they were evil. They were corrupt. They were sons of Belial. They, in fact, were sons about whom some of the following statements the text says are made. These sons, of course, had a role in aiding the people in their service at the tabernacle. They were part of assisting them in making sacrifices. They were to be a part in helping them render proper service unto God. And yet these two sons, note some of these sins, they committed fornication with women as they came to the tabernacle, believe it or not. In addition, when the people brought their sacrifices, the priests indeed on many occasions had their rightful part of it, but these priests would take advantage of the people in their coming and would take differently than what their part was and they would take their part prior to God getting His part. These priests were carnal, they were selfish, they were corrupt, they were immoral, they were ungodly, and these were Eli's two sons. Hophni and Phinehas, as their names are provided, their condition was a sorely ungodly one indeed. That, in fact, is a descriptive of the remainder of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Because, as you can well tell, the following thing happened. God's people were caused to transgress because of the sins of these two sons. And that's a direct quotation of verse 17. Beyond that, you can notice that God commissioned a prophet. An unnamed man of God came to Eli and prophesied. This prophecy was a very sore and important matter. If I may paraphrase some of what the prophet said, it was this. Eli, you know what sins your sons are committing. You know the kind of lives that they are living and you know the way they're causing my people to transgress. But Eli, you have not disciplined them the way that you should have. Because of that, dark days shall come upon your family. There will not be an old man living in your house and furthermore your two sons are both going to die on the same day. This prophet came to Eli and told him this. You can well imagine that some of the message that Eli heard in that was no doubt a very sorrowful one. God was displeased with the way he had failed to chastise and correct his sons. And furthermore, God was not going to tolerate their continuing evil. Both of them will die in the same day. In fact, next Sunday night we will find what day that was when we arrive at chapter 4. It was one of the darkest days in all of Israel's history. Not only did they die, but several thousand others did too. You can wait till next Sunday night with me as we study about the fateful events of that day. For now, might we notice one more thing as that chapter closes. Not an old man would be left in that family, and as the closing two verses of chapter 2 tell us, that family would also be found in want. In fact, he says, your descendants, Eli, are going to in fact come and bow in order just to get a morsel of bread. The time's going to come that things are going to be hard. And it all stems from the unfaithfulness of your family. 
doesn't that highlight to us how important it is to be faithful? To sit before our children and to, as families, live in a way that's honorable before the God of heaven. For now, as you think with me about some of those things, what might be some lessons that you and I can extract from this text that can help us live more rightly before God? One of the things we each appreciate about the Old Testament is, even though it is a law beneath which we do not live today, its lessons are vital. Its messages are pertinent, and the concepts and principles found in it are still needful for us. One of the things we see about the law of Moses from Galatians 3.24 is this. It is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The better we understand the Old Testament, the better our appreciation will be of the law of Christ. For it is a schoolmaster that points in every regard to the greatness of what the Lord has done for all of us today. Some brief lessons from these opening two chapters might be these. First, think with me for just a moment about Hannah and her relationship to Peninnah. We each can perhaps think about the difficulties that arose because Hannah could not bear any children at the outset of our lesson, but that Peninnah could. And Peninnah made fun of her, made her life miserable and hard, challenged her and perhaps insulted her abilities as a woman. You can't have any children, but I have. Sometimes, isn't it true that you and I are called upon to be in a position that we face hardships from other people? It may be a co-worker. It may be a fellow student in class. It may be someone with whom we have to deal, and they make our life miserable because of the kind of behavior that they exhibit, because of the kind of person that they are, because of because of the character that they exemplify, sometimes they really make being a Christian a challenge, don't they? Sometimes the way they talk. Sometimes the way they act. They'll stab you in the back when you turn and try to do a good deed to them. Sometimes it's challenging, isn't it? I would invite you to think about all the months that Hannah had to put up with Peninnah and all the challenges and difficulties that this rival provoked within her. How did Hannah handle it? What did she deal with it? Here are some comments. First of all, it might be noteworthy that Elkanah, Hannah's husband, tried to make things better. You might recall he tried to soothe Hannah's difficulty. He tried to point out to her, Am not I better than thee than ten sons? In light of all that, that didn't seem to soothe Hannah very much because it was after that he said that she still went to the place of prayer. I might submit to you that that is one of our great blessings of example. When Hannah was dealing with these difficulties, where did she go? She didn't lose sight of her ultimate relationship to God. The things we face in this life must not be allowed to drive a wedge between us and God. There is something more valuable. There is something more needful. It's our linkage to the God of heaven because this life is only temporary. This life in the flesh will end. Our life eternally in the Spirit will be forever. May we not allow anyone to cause us to be unfaithful. May we not allow anyone to, in fact, their behavior to drive us to the point that we sin against God. May it not be so. Think about just a few examples even besides Hannah. What might be said about Stephen? 
there were individuals who had rocks in hand ready to stone him in Acts chapter 7. He was a faithful preacher of the Lord. Would it not have been easy at that moment to curse the ones about to stone him? Wouldn't it have been easy to, in fact, pronounce a prophetical curse upon them because they were unwilling to listen to the message? And yet, the words out of Stephen's mouth were these, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He still, even in the face of these who wished his death, he still could wish the best for them. He still loved them and still had a desire that things might be well for them. Are you and I that strong spiritually? When someone has stuck a knife in our back, taken advantage of us and got the promotion instead of me when I deserved it, can we not think terrible thoughts about them? Are we in a position to in fact still hope that things can be better for them? That's hard, isn't it? That's very difficult. Paul, though, perhaps provides another example. In addition to Stephen, what was it that Paul stated? In the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, here was a man who himself had been on the side of the rocks more than once. He stated in that chapter he had been stoned more than once. He'd been shipwrecked more than once. Couldn't Paul rightly have said, is this worth it? I could have been sitting at the house on the front porch enjoying a nice glass of tea and not been going through all of this. But yet Paul was willing to give it all up and said, if by, might by all means save some. That was the kind of man Paul was. He knew the gospel was that valuable and souls were that needful. Didn't Jesus say in Mark 8 beginning in verse 36, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Paul had the message of salvation and he would not be stopped from preaching it. When you and I think about the difficulties of life that can come our way from others, may we in strength not allow them to cause us to sin. But that does bring us to another lesson. What about the matter that I've described in terms of prayer? When Hannah found herself in this predicament, what did she do? Did she fly into a rage and curse Peninnah? Did she fly into a rage and perhaps journey back homeward by herself? The text says nothing of the sort. In fact, in chapter 1, it points out she went to the place of prayer. Hannah knew there was only one place to which she could go in the face of this kind of problem. She went to pray. And it says, after the feasting of the, of the time was over, she went to the place of prayer, and this is when Eli witnessed her prayer. This is when he saw her lips moving but heard no voice. This is when she earnestly prayed for a son. This is when she also made a vow, If you will grant me the son, I will give him to you forever. One has to admire Hannah's dedication. One has to admire also her character for her willingness to pray like this. I wonder if you and I at least reflect upon our prayer life. Are we as dedicated in prayer as she was? After all, wasn't there great power in prayer? Isn't it true that God answered that prayer in the way that she had prayed it? When she prayed for a son, God blessed her a few months later with the birth of a son. 
God had answered that prayer. The barrenness of her womb had been removed. Doesn't that teach us about the power of prayer? When you and I face those decisions of life, where else is there better to turn than upon bended knee to the God of heaven praying for guidance, praying for leadership, praying that the decision might be right? Sometimes the decision that we ultimately make is not the one we first originally thought in mind because God has led us by His providential means to think about a new approach. The power of prayer. Do we not read in James 5.16 that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much? That word availeth means to bring to fruition. It brings to efficacy. The effectual prayer of a righteous man is effective. You and I believe that and that's why we pray. Is not the example of Hannah case in point that prayer is powerful? We notice in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17 that we're admonished to pray without ceasing. There ought not come stretches of weeks upon end when you and I don't pray. That's a problem. If that time comes that a week passes and you and I haven't prayed, what has that said? We have gone a week without communicating with our Heavenly Father. We've gone a week without communicating with His greatness and the power of what He wishes us to know. Jesus, in fact, uttered this marvelous reminder in Luke 18 verse 1 that men ought always to pray and not to faint. One of the easiest things to do is to faint, isn't it? To lose heart, to be discouraged, to give up. And Jesus says one of the ways that we can ensure that does not happen is to be fervent in prayer. Are you and I fervent enough in prayer? In Mark 1.35, our Savior got up early and went out to a solitary place to pray. He didn't go out there to do anything except to pray. Do you and I make sure that we set aside time so that we can pray as we ought? These first two lessons about the difficulties we encounter from others from time to time and about the power of prayer perhaps leads us to a third one. What is it that Hannah did after she was blessed with a son? I would suspect that one of the problems that you and I face from time to time is this. We pray and God blesses us with the very thing for which we have prayed. But then we fail to thank Him as we should. May we be better than that. In fact, here as Hannah was blessed with the birth of a son, the opening ten verses of chapter 2 point out the thanksgiving that was in Hannah's heart. And in fact, her thanksgiving was so deep that she, in fact, devoted ten verses to a marvelous prayer of thanksgiving and reminder. Do you and I devote proper thanksgiving to God when He has blessed us? This very day, you and I probably have enjoyed more than one meal in which a table was full. Did we thank God for it? This very night, we may well pillow our head beneath a roof that won't leak. Are we thankful for it? You and I have clothes on our back. Perhaps closets in abundance. Are we thankful for it? You and I perhaps have jobs in which we can go and earn a sufficient income so that we are not only able to bless our family with needs, but we can also take care of all the needs of life. Are we as thankful for that as we should be? 
God has blessed us so abundantly. The thankfulness we see in the first 10 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2. I would invite you to simply notice a few of the verses in that prayer of thanksgiving. Verse number 2. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. As a part of her prayer of thanksgiving, Hannah made mention of the great rock that is our God and how greatly He is able to provide and the strength that's found within Him. Notice another verse. Verse number 6 and 7. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. Hannah seemed so appreciative and so thankful for the blessings that were hers. You and I live in a world so often where unthankfulness is more often seen. People take advantage of others. They take what's not theirs. They run roughshod over the feelings and desires and needs of others and seemingly don't care. Hannah took the time to thank the God of heaven for His blessings. I might submit to each of us that the God of heaven expects us to be thankful. In Luke the 17th chapter, the record is given of ten lepers. Our Savior healed every one of them. Only one of them returned to say thank you. The words of our Savior are unforgettable. He asked this question, Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Jesus wanted to know where are the other nine. He expected an expression of thankfulness. Are you and I thankful? Perhaps as we offer our next prayer to God, we too might express some thanksgiving that we're thankful for what He's done. I would point out in light of that particular thought, perhaps, one final lesson, and then our lesson will be drawn to its conclusion tonight. This final lesson is in fact this one. As you can see near the top of that slide, I've simply entitled it, Honoring People Above God. I would invite you to reflect for just a moment upon the issue dealing with Eli's sons. And I'd like you to read one verse in particular. When that unnamed prophet came and addressed Eli and pointed out to him that you have honored people above me, that message was a very harsh one. The very language is so telling that I would invite you to read it with me. It's found in chapter number 2 of 1 Samuel in that particular chapter, you notice the following reading. Verse number 30. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thine house. And then verse 29, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. The God of heaven through that prophet said that I have elevated the family so that they could be priests, and so that they could serve my people Israel. But Eli, you have honored your sons more than me. 
You have tolerated their evil. You have failed to correct them. You have failed to discipline them. You have brought reproach upon my name. You have honored people more than you've honored me. God says, I won't tolerate that. And I would submit to you that that will be our final lesson of the evening. It is so often a tendency, isn't it, for the world to honor what people think much more than what they honor what God has said. No doubt many of us have had conversation with people who think much more about their parents and their grandparents than they think about what this book teaches. They think much more about their preferences than they do about what God has said. All the while, God through that prophet said, that is intolerable. Today, it still is intolerable. For each of us will stand before the God of heaven in judgment and we're going to give an answer if we have honored somebody, be it a king, a president, a son, a daughter, a parent. If we've honored them more than we've honored God, we will have an to answer for that. Eli's sons had acted sinfully. They would brought reproach upon Israel, upon the life of Israel, and upon God. And God said, there will not be an old man in your family. I'm going to end this. We shall find in chapter 4 that when that dark day came, that they both died the same day. Others had to become the priests. And thankfully, it was a man like Samuel. One who was holy. One that was godly. One that desired truly from the heart to serve the God of heaven. And who did not honor people above God. Tonight, as we bring this lesson to its conclusion, look at some of the things that the New Testament teaches about that same sin. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. He said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I have commanded you, John 15, 14. And we read time and again about the needfulness of us not to fall into idolatry, Colossians 3, 5. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Reads 1 John 5, verse 21. As we bring this lesson to its conclusion tonight, we have learned and we have hit the ground in a very running fashion to notice we've seen Elkanah. We've been introduced to Hannah and to Peninnah. And now we've been introduced to their son named Samuel. As Samuel was born, what a great leader of Israel he would become. Later we shall find that he will anoint Saul as the first king. He will anoint David as the second king. He will be a powerful figure in the leadership of Israel to the ways of rightness. I might ask, what about you and me? Are you and I powerful figures for right? Or are we too given to that which is weak? Are we too compromising on what God has said? Samuel would not compromise. Later, he will be a stalwart and bulwark figure for truth and for right. May you and I be the same. And as we have learned these four lessons, they have been in the following framework. We have seen about the power of prayer. We've seen the possibility of others that would, pro that would provoke us and trouble us. And we've also learned about the greatness of what is found when we appreciate those last two lessons. This very night... What about your life and mine? Are we proper servants in the kingdom of the Lord? Are we those who, like Samuel, will be good figures for noteworthiness and truth? Or are we people whose lives stand more for error like Eli's sons? If the latter is your situation, don't remain in that state. The time is too urgent. The point is too needful. If we could be of assistance to you tonight, the baptismal waters behind me are ready. 
we could in fact assist you to become a member of the body of Christ this very evening. Hear God's Word and believe it with all your heart. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God and repent of your sins. Confess His marvelous name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could be of some help to you in that regard, why not tonight? If you've begun that walk of faith, but to this point you have wandered astray, you have in fact lost sight of the fold and all the providential blessings, come back to that first love. Don't be like Eli's sons. Be more like Samuel. One who was dedicated wholly to the cause of God and who in thanksgiving could day by day be thankful for God's blessings on him. If we could pray for your rededication, we'd love to do that tonight. We would only ask that as we stand in just a moment and sing this song, you'd let us know in what way we could be of help, and that you would do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.